Welcome Club Sodas one and all. Hi Jesse and Carla. Hello. Hello. Uh, today we're looking at The Informant 2009 and Contagion 2011. Both films were penned by screenwriter Scott Z. Burns, who will go on to write Side Effects and the upcoming Panama Papers with Soderbergh. I think the collaboration is a sweet one because both like to make very info-heavy films and this union seems to have had, got them both to get a handle on exposition, which at times is on display in Oceans and the Shea films. We are now entering a period in which Soderbergh starts mentioning a self-imposed retirement and he is pumping out a few last films to fulfil his studio contract. Between making The Informant and Contagion, he came to Australia to direct a play um, in Sydney, which was called Top Mom, during which he made a secret feature film with a terrible title, The Last Time I Saw Michael Gregg. It starred Kate Blanchett and other Aussie actors from the play. The film was never released and never will be, but it's out there in the ether, people. So stay tuned for future episodes where we will be discussing it with a special guest. The Informant stars Matt Damon as a whistleblower on corporate crime, and I believe it is the spiritual spin-off to Schizopolis. The tone is not that of a laugh-out-loud comedy, but it is darkly, deeply, and at times cringingly hilarious. Damon's haircut and mo are divinely perfectly 90s provincial executive, and he has the chinos to go with it. There's even a businessman's golf junket in Hawaii, so I know Carla is going to go apeshit for this film. <laughs> Contagion, released in 2011, was a box office success, more than doubling its big budget in returns. Audiences were probably initially attracted to a blockbuster disaster movie with its star-studded cast, including Damon, Paltrow, Winslet, Law, Fishburne and other lesser-known actors just as talented. But it's hard to pin down the genre. It's definitely got that disaster film element, but it's also kind of dystopian, sci-fi, medical horror that could happen in real life. And you will never touch your face again after watching this film. <laughs> but firstly, Carla, tell us more about the informant! Exclamation mark. If you hear from him again, talk him down on the price. I want you to find out the least amount of money he'd settle for. I mean, if we can get a bug that's resistant to the virus, this might be worth it. But I want you to keep this secret. If there is a mole, I don't want him to know that we're onto him. Absolutely. This would be a great place for some outlet stores. People would come from all over southern Illinois, probably Missouri too. Famous name brand labels and appliances at savings of up to 50% every day. Maybe a food court with a Mexican place. The birds eat the bugs, the cars eat the birds, the rust eats the cars, and the new construction eats the rust. Okay, 2009's The Informant is based on the true story of Mark Whitaker and one of the biggest price-fixing conspiracies of all time. We are in fertile Soderbergh territory here. It's very easy to understand why he was in love with this story. Corporate espionage, extreme greed, the Midwest, a bumbling FBI who were also bamboozled, an unreliable narrator worthy of a Crichton novel. This film is akin to being slowly lowered down a well. Just when you have a grip on where the story is going, another layer of deception is revealed. Our protagonist's mania a little more surfaced. Mark Whitaker, biochemist executive, begins working for the FBI in the early 1990s after revealing to, him, to them that his company, ADM's, primary product lysine, is being globally price-fixed. 
Working for the Bureau for four years and taping hundreds of hours of material, the fix was certainly in, but once they began to prosecute, it all goes horribly wrong. Mark is a compulsive liar with delusions of grandeur. From telling people his parents died in a car accident and he was orphaned as a little boy, to being an extremely competent forger, his middle-of-the-road scientist sameness seemed to be the perfect cover for him to embezzle over $11 million from ADM. The informant is directed as a farce with a jaunty banjo score, but is constantly overrun with Whitaker's internal dialogue and thrill at events unfolding. We get to hear his stream of consciousness, but also register his feelings with the score, which changes per situation mostly to action film or suspense thriller music. I feel like this film is akin to Kaufman's adaptation in that regard, where the protagonist is so meta his thoughts and feelings become the film. Taking this metaphor to its full extent, it seems it's seeming to infer that Whitaker doesn't even think what he is doing is wrong, as his internal dialogue never implicates himself nor talks about his crimes that he is an everyman and that anyone in his shoes would do the same thing. Soderbergh back on his favourite subject of shit men, but also possibly the most dangerous, very smart but also very deluded. Going on our themes of the past few and upcoming films, do you feel that this was another critique of capitalism, that basically anyone without moral scruples could cause an Enron, so how is this a system to be revered? Or do you think he just thought it was a funny story with a fantastic setting? That's an interesting question. I think it's hard not to see it as a critique of capitalism Um, and we know that that's kind of one of his interests. Um, But, I, yeah, like I don't think that he could have just made a film that was just that. Like I don't think that's enough for him and I think there's a lot of layers to the onion with this story. Sure. That, like, you know, there's the depiction of corporate criminality which is so kind of bland and effortless to the people perpetrating it and they're not even it's not even trying to conceal itself um and then the depiction of kind of american family values as being you know like this picture perfect image of this weird <laughs> midwestern family on yeah. their christmas card but like the wife doesn't question at any point why they have eight cars yeah like all the stuff that gets revealed over the course of the story it's like you think they're innocent people and then it's like you know have you been paying any attention yeah. like um, just that their aspiration is so total yeah, that yeah. it's completely blinding. And just in La La Land. Like, yeah. And yeah. then also I think, yeah, the personality of the central character is obviously just irresistible to do something with, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he's been, I mean, the film has been critiqued for um, treating mental illness lightly because, you know, by the end of the film it's clear that he's got manic what is it? He's got bipolar or he's been diagnosed with bipolar and manic depression or something like that. But um, I don't, th- you know, like I, maybe that was what was attractive to Steven Soderbergh was to make someone who's so delusional or so kind of, I don't know, did you buy the mental illness angle? Oh, look, I think, you know, someone who's, you know, the full basket doesn't do stuff like this in yeah. terms of the level of um, uh what's the word deception Mm. the the intricate levels of deception um i think that there's definitely an element of mark whittaker being a a deluded fantasist um to the point that it's not 
you know, as we say in psychology, like part of the bell curve, like he would be statistically deviant in terms of, um, and I mean, look at the, the acts that he did. And that is a lot of, the, and I, I don't think it is necessarily a, a comment on mental illness per se, but really uh, around, I mean, the people who caused Enron and stuff, they're all sociopaths, psychopaths. Like they're all on the other end of the bell curve in yeah. terms of their yeah. Yeah. Personality disorders, but I think and really you can this- see that. What I loved, um, sorry to interrupt you, but you can see that there's a great scene where they're on the plane on a private jet, and Mark's talking to his boss, and his boss starts going on and on about some chick, and you know, yeah, you know, having a baby doesn't ruin her tits, and yeah. you know, that scene to me, so Mark just kind of fades out. Yeah, he um, just goes into his own internal dialogue, yeah. <laughs> as, he, as he always does. Yeah. But I, I don't think it was a critique per se of mental illness. I think it's really a critique of the system that enables and supports people like this to yeah. do the crimes that they do, Yeah, you know. Yeah, I find I, this really interesting. I didn't think of it until I heard you started talking, Jesse, but really this film in a timeline sense is, is very sort of straight after um, Sex Lies Videotape. So Sex Lies Videotape is in the after, is just just before the stock market crash of 1988. Mm. And here we have a storyline that starts in 1992, yeah. not, much, not much time later, with extreme corporate espionage, espionage back on deck. Like mm. it's, it's business as usual, mm. um, which I think was probably also part of the timeline story that he was very attracted to. Mm. Mm. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. On that, um, I didn't not buy or buy the mental illness angle. Like, I think you're right that, um, you know, on some level there's obviously something, you know. NQR. NQR about this guy. (laughs) But at the same time, like, that doesn't excuse or necessarily explain the level of fraud and embezzlement that he took part in. And and He's also very greedy. Very greedy. He's mentally ill, but he's also extremely greedy. Yeah, Yeah. and I didn't think it was making fun of him. I thought it was actually like a really – like I thought it was fascinating how, you know, you're sort of plunged from the start of the film right into his kind of mental chatter Mm. and how it's sort of like running it parallel to what's happening in real life. It's not really – it's sort of hard to figure out how it's related in each moment. It's almost like he's trying to evade what's happening in real life with mm. his mental narrative. Mm. And then it's, there's that moment where it catches up with reality where, you know, he's saying, someone's saying to him, you know, stop lying. Why, why do you keep lying? And his, his inner narrative says, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, he doesn't, like, but he doesn't say anything. Yeah, he doesn't say anything. Yeah. But it's like that moment where it sort of actually catches up with him. Yeah. But also his need to lie, I think... Um, the way that, you know, he's portrayed with his family. If we have this big story about him being an orphan and he's been adopted by a wonderful man who owns theme parks. Um, and then at the end you see he's, you know, quite know. nice parents. And they're just, they're just like, a bit baffled. that's a bit weird. Why would he do that? <laughs> but also like how he justified it at every step of the way of when he was caught. So like mm. he, he gets caught out on the whole um not being adopted lie and so his internal narrative goes into well you know I just said this thing once in college and people responded really positive to positively to that so I kept it going because why wouldn't I want people to you know give me more opportunities and then you know, other and people kept repeating it so it wasn't even really like he's yeah, always like sort of I evading didn't, I didn't continue to yeah. perpetuate it yeah. you know yeah and I think that that is actually very clear because the thing is is that although it is based on you know a true story um this is a 
a fictionalization of his personality yeah. and his yeah. character. It's not mm. verbatim yeah. from yeah, the real Mark Whitaker. So yeah. this is where I think the artistic license um, and what he has chosen to do with that is really reveals how he feels about the story. Yeah. And I've, 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 I meant to re-edit the intro, but because I didn't really want to say capitalism, I wanted to say unfettered, unregulated capitalism. Yeah. And I think that's probably the sweet spot of where Soderbergh sits because I'm not necessarily entirely against capitalism. And mm. shit men in capitalism. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but when, how, you, you know, like but when a- you look at the American system, which is entirely, almost entirely unregulated and constantly aiming to be even more unregulated, yeah. you look at this as the, you know, when you don't have any checks and balances, you, you end up with situations like this. Yeah. yeah. I, um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I. It reminded me. Um, do you guys remember the Ute Gate controversy in Oz politics? <laughs> no. Godwin Gresh. Oh, uh, vaguely. <laughs> yes. Who was this very, very similarly kind of delusional, dissembling kind of character? Who um, he fabricated an email from the prime minister. Oh yeah. About a Ute. And just got, you know, he was leaking stuff to the press and doing all this backgrounding and just, like, putting himself at the centre of this grand drama and it was all completely confected in the end. Um, but he, he obviously... was a sad little kind of grey man when you Yeah, kind of, when like a really strange character. the problem was, yeah. Yeah, and it, it, so it made me think of that, like, that these yeah. people do exist in real life. And the of other course. one, Kathy Jackson, the health services union yes. um, boss who... He was a whistleblower and sort of took on this role as the heroic whistleblower. And then it turned out that she had embezzled all this money from the um, union, from the union yeah. and been completely corrupt. Um, oh, that and that doco that the ABC did of, on her and her husband, you have to track it down. So disturbing. Nuts. And, no. there's, and there's like that level where they've been recording each other and recording conversations with the um, reporters and the police yeah. and yeah, it's it's like this. It's on this yeah. level. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, that's like borderline personality disorder where they cannot not be the centre of attention at yeah. all times. Yeah, I wonder and if that's a peril of whistleblower, you know, like of people who work with whistleblowers, whether they, you know. Well, and that's also there's a, there's a thing called, you know, arc, uh, what is it, angel of death nurses, which are these are the nurses that put people into flat lines so that mm. they could like run in and save them, you oh know. Oh, my God. No, yeah. I had never heard of that. Oh, really? No. Oh, it's actually it's a massive thing. And actually the biggest mass murderers of all time are these nurses <gasps> and doctors that oh, wow. kill their patients. Oh. There's like a guy from Brazil that's like 250 people long, 250 people suspected murder. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Can oh. we talk about Melanie Linsky? Oh, yeah. Her hair. Can we talk about Ginger. her hair? Oh, oh, yeah. The hair in this film. Oh, the hair. Across the, the board. The ties. Matt Damon's ties, ties made me actually gag. Like, they were so. <laughs> and he talks vomitous. about them in his, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that, you know he gets his special I'm ties. just going to buy them all in Paris from yeah. now on. <laughs> but also, Matt, um, his hair. I mean, I, this is the movie where I'm like, okay, I can see why we love this guy. Why yeah. you guys love this guy. Matt Damon. This is the one where I'm like, Yes, yes, Matt, yes. It shows his range for sure. Like mm-hmm. he's really, really good in it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's actually like it's a very demented role to take on yeah. and to play a straight man in that way is actually very um, difficult. I still think, do you guys, have you guys ever seen The Kids in the Hall, the Canadian sketch no. comedy program? Um, I think Dave Foley would have been the most perfect person for this role. <laughs> but, I mean, Matt, I'm the father of four daughters, Damon, is very problematic as a person. But as an actor, definitely this was the film that made me just think, okay, there's something more to you, you mm. twisted yeah. freak. I think actually this kind of sequence of films 
you know, he's been in a few Soderbergh films in this period. And it really does show Canada his Lava. kind of does show his chops, I think, mm. as an actor. Melanie Linsky, we've got to get back to her. Ginger. She's, yeah. And how could you resist a story about Mark and Ginger Whitaker? Like just alone, <laughs> Midwestern executive family. It's a real espionage. love story. Oh my god! They were really truly in love. They met in high school. <laughs> she stuck with him even though his um, piece came Compl- off. Did yeah, you notice that? Oh yeah, his piece came off. Did you notice that she called him Corky? Yeah, I was like, yeah. <laughs> I know, <laughs> even so more bizarre. Um, I love Melanie Linsky more than anything on this planet. So I was just screaming the entire time. And there's this, like, she's so perfect. And the whole film is so perfect to me. I love that 90s halo of the down um, fluoros. Like the whole film just has, like, I think it's even shot on film or digital, but it has that halo of video because mm-hmm. the, the lighting is so disgusting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but in that whole first scene where he's talking about corn and they're sitting there at dinner <laughs> talking and she just like very delicately uh, gets a little corn kernel off her cob with a fork and puts it into her mouth. <laughs> she's, like, she's so perfect. <laughs> uh... Uh, yeah, yeah, what did you think about this as being a kind of spin-off to Schizopolis? Because oh, there was quite a few references. It actually looks very similar. Yeah. Um, and then he talks about a dream that he had where um, there's another one. He sees another himself. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. follows himself home. <laughs> yes, that was, that's right. That was from Schizopolis. Yeah. Right. You know, that, that yeah. storyline. Yeah. I um. I loved um, the FBI agents as well. Yes, yes. Scott Bakula. Well, Scott Bakula, he's amazing here as well. But also Joel McHale. Yeah. Like in particular, I loved watching his reactions to yes. um, everything that Mark was doing <laughs> because it just you could just see his face fall, like and you know cha- qu- quail, like yeah. his face would just change color. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so and that, was that whole scene finished. where he starts confessing about the embezzlement. <laughs> And they're just sitting there listening to it. (laughs) Jesus. And then, you know, there must have been three or four times through the film where they're like, are you sure that's it, Mark? Is there anything else, Mark? Are you sure? Because there's no... Or like, just stop talking to us. Yeah. Get away from me. You can talk to us about your feelings, but never talk to us about the case ever again. (laughs) It is such a funny film. Like, I just was chuckling all the way through it. I was laughing, but also, like, I felt sick. Like, it was just in equal amounts. Like, the whole time, just me going, going, what is wrong with the world? You know, and these, like, poor... I mean, these FBI, these are, like, the cream of the crop, you know, and they're just... They're the, they just got completely bamboozled. And even, like, every step of the way, they're like, why is this person offering this information? What's wrong with him? Doing background checks on him. And, and you they're know, like, no, we carry this photo of his family around. <laughs> like, they compl- <laughs> have complete <laughs> faith in him. But, yeah, that moment where he tells them, like, all the people in the office that he's told about being... <laughs> Who did you tell well, about? I had to sting? tell my secretary. Yeah. <laughs> I had to tell my secretary. I love it when he's talking to the um, head of FBI and he's saying, you know, it's going to be the same after I, you know, they find out it was me. It's, I'm going to get a promotion. You know, yeah. like, it's all going to be the same. And she's like, yeah, I think like, the work culture is going to change, Mark. And he's like, mm, yes. <laughs> and I think that's the real pivotal moment where they understand that he has no fucking idea what's yeah. going on. 
But really, it's the other way around because yeah. he has every idea of what's going on. <laughs> it was nine million. Actually, it was eleven million. Actually, it was seventeen point yeah. five million. I love like this film is so demented. Yeah, I loved every second of it. it demented. How did you guys feel about it? Yeah, loved it. I loved. Yeah, yeah I also thought. We were talking about Matt Damon before, um, you know, his crazy hair and his ties and everything, but just his face. Like he has this real kind of um, cheesy American face. Mm. It's just perfect for this character. Like he looks kind of sweet and boyish in one moment and then sort of slightly piggish and evil, you know, like squinty. Like he just had that great kind of Dutch, you know, I don't know. Well, he put on a lot of chub for this film as well. So he had the big... um you know, in his chinos, like all the folds of the, of the chinos, big flat bit. It's kind of like American Psycho if everyone was like ugly and from the Midwest, you know. Like, yes. and, that's, and I think that's the real face of this banal kind of corporate crime yeah. that destroys yeah. hundreds of thousands yeah. of people's lives. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, very much the area that Soderbergh is completely obsessed with. Maybe that's the thing that wasn't um, as effective for me is just understanding how the the – corporate crime that the that, that they ultimately that they got away with um was so much work you know like how does that actually affect people you know it's upping their um groceries basically isn't it yeah everything this stuff's in everything yeah so and it's yeah. also like for people who are not within the consortium it's either running them out of business or mm, yeah you know forcing them to produce at a rate that is not that's right you know tenable yeah so maybe that wasn't as illustrated like it probably could have been done with a few kind of just extra visual scenes to kind of okay show maybe i mean that's i'm interesting just, you know, yeah can't. no yeah that's true i yeah. didn't really understand either and that, that sort of was quite different from something like um erin brockovich where all that was really sort of spelled yeah. out like that okay. was the whole focus of that film yeah whereas this was more about this weird character yeah yeah i didn't think of it as a spiritual cousin to erin like, brockovich either yeah yeah yeah, I was just going to say ultimately his um, crimes, even though he, like he embezzled a lot of money, were not as I mean they're bad, but they're not as bad as you know these these fat cats embezzling everyone. No, you know, in America. no, yeah, I did have a point. But then, like yeah. even at the end, and that's where I get the <laughs> I the adaptation reference because it comes to the point where Mark Whitaker is, is cut off from being able to participate in the dialogue, and mm. it just comes becomes about what he has then being prosecuted. Mm. Um, and how he's still like trying to get that presidential pardon, mm. you know. Mm. So the yeah. delusion continues, and yeah. there's, I think, the inference that, yeah. you know, this is a sickness that doesn't go away. Yeah. Mm. Shall we move on? But speaking mm. of sickness. Mm. <laughs> <coughs> we have 47 cases and eight deaths as of five this afternoon. It's a weekend, these numbers might be low. People are staying at home for a couple of days to see if they get any better. So at this point, I think we have to believe this is respiratory. Maybe fomites, too. What's that, fomites? Uh, it refers to transmission from surfaces. The average person touches their face two or three thousand times a day. Two or three thousand times a day? Three to five times every waking minute. In between, we're touching doorknobs, water fountains, elevator buttons, and each other. Those things become fomites. Contagion tracks the outbreak of a killer virus from day one. Gwyneth Paltrow and a few others travelling from Hong Kong all get a cold, sweat a lot, froth at the mouth, convulse, then die. This is a multi-perspective ensemble piece illustrating a few different perspectives, mainly the efforts of 
different proponents of Western science with Lawrence Fishburne and Kate Winslet from Homeland Security trying to work out if the killer virus is a biological weapon. To Jennifer Eel, Marion Cotillard and Streisand's husband working to under- identify its source from bats and pigs to track its dangerously high reproductive and survival rate and race and the race to develop a vaccine as millions of people around the world die from infection. Contagion is about fomites, a form of virus transmission, as Kate Winslet calmly explains in that opening clip. Soderbergh takes a kind of evil joy in showing lingering shots of a handrail on a train that has just been touched by an infected person, <laughs> or Elliot Gould's expression of disgust as he looks around at coughing, <laughs> snivelling humans in a restaurant, feeding their children by hand, washing ditches, dishes, touching each other's faces. <laughs> Contagion is also about Gwyneth Paltrow, founder of Goop, as the ground zero of infection, <laughs> and a disgusting yet hilarious scene after she dies where her head <laughs> is literally sawn open yeah. and a flap of scalp just flips into it's view. It's amazing. <laughs> and then two doctors gasp at what they see in there and they have to step away from the body. <laughs> that, had, you know, that had to be intentional. It's a great metaphor. <laughs> the usual Soderberghian limitations and rules are in play. It will not be a typical disaster film. No shots of cities and piles of dead bodies, no weeping, no sentimentality, no handheld cameras, three lenses only, cameras won't move unless a character does, and how few shots can this scene be done in? It has been accused of being a cold film. What Soderbergh says that he deliberately avoids sentimentality because nothing ages a movie faster. Mm. He also has been quoted as saying he wants to avoid white people who feel empty films and why doesn't she love me films like he's got a very like wants Mm. to stay away from the cliches and I understand that he means to avoid deliberate emotional manipulation which is so rife in mainstream storytelling but also I can think of lots of great sentimental films and what I want to ask is does Soderbergh adopt a kind of masculinist point of view which poses as efficient and classical and is he shying away from really engaging with the messiness and personal revelation of emotional relationships and does it matter for contagion <laughs> what do you think um <clears throat> well interestingly i have always hated this film oh. and i when i first saw it i thought it was one of the most boring movies ever made and i didn't understand it at all and in fact probably my favorite thing about it was that gwyneth paltrow dies in the first 10 minutes yeah <laughs> but um <laughs> Watching it again was great because I could, it was a complete reappraisal for me and I thought, I thought it was great and I loved the approach. I mean, I, I can I understand the question, but I think um, – I don't know if it's masculinist or I, – I felt like the film is from the perspective of the people trying to solve the problem. Yeah. De- and so deliberately it's sort of – they have to – they can't take on all the fear – and pain and emotion of the people they're treating, otherwise they won't be able to solve the problem. Mm. But it's always there in the background, you know, like so many of them lose family members or yeah. friends um, and, are, you know, just, just stuffing down that panic so that they can get the job done. So mm. I think that's kind of more the, what the intention yeah, is. Yeah, like West, it's, a, it's an ode to Western science. Really. But I, like, I sort of saw it as a thriller where instead of having a, a person murderer, you have this disease yeah. and it's about the detectives trying to catch the murderer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it felt like a cold thriller to me. And yeah. also like I felt like it was very, I mean, I don't want to say realistic because it's a movie, but it just felt to me like, you know, this is what will happen, mm. right? Yeah, that's People the other will thing. just die. 
right? And everyone just has to keep moving on. And there is no sentimentality when there is massive outbreaks of a disease that is going to kill millions of people. There is no time or room for that. Yeah. Interestingly, he like he says, um, I read somewhere, I can't remember where, but he did say that two of his writing buddy friends um, said this is actually the most – there were two scenes in this film, he didn't specify which, that are the most emotional they've ever seen in a Soderbergh film. Mm. Uh, so I guess my question – I don't know what, I what do scenes find do emotional. I think the scene where – um, Jennifer Eel's character um, is with her dad. Yeah. Mm. And she says that she, she takes off her mask and mm. touches him. Yeah. And because he's When about Kate to Winslet die. dies, when yeah. the person who's yeah. trying to save everyone dies, yeah. I'm just like, that's just that reality. But that was yeah. so heartbreaking. But it wasn't played for emotion, I guess. She just kind mm. of faded away. And, um, I also thought it was quite moving at the end when Matt Damon's looking through the camera pictures of um, his, wife. his wife, you know, who, like, he just hasn't been able to actually process that grief, you know, like, yeah. until that moment, like. But also yeah. I do have a massive sentimentality issue with this movie, that whole you 2 fucking daughter prom <laughs> Dancing with the boy scene yeah. made me want to spew. Yeah. And I was so angry that that scene was a part of it. It just seemed so tacked unnecessary on. and tacked on. I exactly. agree. That was a real piece Apart of, from sh- YouTube moment being of shit. Revolting. Yeah. That was a moment of shit akin to the um, end of Traffic with the daughter. <laughs> it was like, and she even looks like the daughter from Traffic. Yeah. I was just like, why is this here? This is such a classy movie. Yeah. And then there's just this. It seemed like know, an appeasement, like, like yes, some executive yes. went. Yeah, maybe there was. Yeah. There needs to be some hero moment yeah. in this thing, yeah. you know. Yeah. Well, there's so many, like, I, I, yeah, like there's so many things that I thought were really clever about this film and so many interesting moments where you see, like, the inequalities in society and how, yeah. Accessing you know. Medication. Yeah, like, yeah. and then it just kind of, like, reverts to this moment of, like, well, white people aren't going to understand this unless we put it in this, like, yeah, prom. You know, yeah. affluent Midwestern kind of context. Yeah. yeah. So, the, you know, one of the great um, sort of contrasts was the village in Hong Kong. Yeah. That, that sort of managed to um, contain themselves and fight off the infection. And, you know, you see them kind of going to school and getting on with life, village life. Um, and you see that from the perspective of the doctor who goes, the epidemiologist who goes to Hong Kong mm. to figure mm. out what's going on. Um, and then, you know, in contrast, in America, everyone's going, going ape shit, you know, storming the, <laughs> storming the pharmacists. Give me the drugs. And, yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, killing each totally other. individualistic way. Surprise, yeah. surprise. I know. Yeah. And know. yet that the was village in scary. Hong Kong will not get the vaccine yeah. unless they, you know, do an action like um, uh, kidnapping. Yeah. Mm. You know, yeah. Yeah, that was fascinating. And yeah. sorry, yeah. So I, I love this film. Like, if I could edit out the whole storyline with the daughter and the prom, yeah. I think it would be a perfect film. Um, oh no, I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, another thing that I, I've seen this film very, like, many times, maybe like seven or eight times. And it didn't really strike me until, you know, the last couple of times that I watched it about how, sort of, as a non comment, like, all the women in these films are like scientific or high executive professionals, Mm. you know, like Gwyneth Paltrow was Mm. like a CEO Mm. and that's the reason why she's patient zero spreading it all around. She's also having an unapologetic affair. Mm -hmm. Um, You've got Kate. And the film's very non-judgmental about that as well. Yeah. Yeah. An unapologetic affair. I think that's really cool. And so I I thought that was really cool about it. And then, then it made me think about, and I'll talk about it in Haywire in the next episode. It made me think about these last sort of five or six films, um, 
that there seems to be a real um, direct um, concentration on making women characters in this way. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, like, the, you know, they are the the big characters. Like, yeah. Matt Damon is kind of the everyman. Mm. Jude Law is just completely fucked in the head, conspiracy. It's a great kind of character. Yeah. yeah. I loved, uh, yeah, like... That char- I was really thinking about that a lot because um, I mean that's kind of like a real Alex Jones type character, yeah. and this is this predates that kind of idea of fake news. And but there's a little storyline about you know where he's sort of like you know the newsprint media is dying, and like he's mm. sort of like on this you know References. talking about the blogosphere and yeah. like which yeah. is sort of kind of funny now, but it's like actually no, this is born born fruit, and like these kind of people are actually really. Fucking up society, yeah. like, and so I think there's like a real kind of premonition of that in this film that you know his yeah. his actions are really having major impacts. And like, I was going to say back to what you were saying about the female characters and the coldness of the. I was thinking um, he he's more comfortable with the shit men, and, and you know delving into that character that character, but with the women, you know, he'll put them. I mean, it's great. I'm not saying it's bad that you know he's showing them as really you know, responsible, um, good leaders, all of that stuff, but maybe not delving into character as much, maybe not as comfortable yet. I think he moves on from that, but, or maybe that's something that he'll, he'll explore further in future films. But what do you think? Am I right? I, I think he's very shallow on characterization for yeah. most of his films. I mean, I think you get a sense of... The motiv- I mean, it's also the writers. I, the, the it's motiv- not just I think you get the but... sense of motivations of people, but really, I find all of his films like very instance or instance-driven, story-driven. Mm. Um, and so, with the, I, I actually found the characterization of women much more strong in these supporting roles previous to this point, where I felt like they were very fleshed-out people, um, and now I, it's sort of more. Um, but I think it's more sort of real life. Like he's just presenting these women as normal people who are CEOs yep. and going about their lives and it doesn't need a comment because it's completely unremarkable. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. And Jennifer Eel's character is great in this. Mm. You know, she's she's a real hero. Yeah. She's a heroine of this piece. Um, back to Jude Law though. He, um, I like the statement on conspiracy mm. ideas. Like yeah. I think – that's sensible because there's a lot of conspiracy theorists out there. Mm, <laughs> I think yeah. It's a sensible kind of, you know, like how can humans get away with the level of conspiracy that you're trying to, you know, like yeah. just, I just how is that, that possible? Kind of, so it, it's usually so compl- complicated and crazy like an ocean's um, <laughs> plot. <laughs> <laughs> but I felt like it, yeah, it's sort of, I don't know, he was interesting because on on one hand it's like he's, yes, he's like a, a loony who's like, doing all this stuff and then you find out it's really for his own personal gain. Surprise. Surprise. But then at the same time, so there's that element to it that he's kind of corrupt, but then there's also like he also is kind of convinced that, you know, the world is unjust and fucked and we know that that's also true. So, like, you can see how people get sucked in, you know, like to because – because, you know, the system does oppress And he's offering people. answers as well. Yeah. No one else is. Yeah. yeah. What was it called? Forsythia. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like um, Alex Jones brooks like herbal remedies on his yeah. show as well. I was just like, this is so funny. Like, yeah. it's such a, yeah, it's just such a premonition, such a, yeah, disturbing yeah. premonition. Yeah. But I loved his handmade kind of 
you know, hazmat suit that he had rigged up and just like stalking around the city, you know, like <laughs> and documenting things. And, yeah, yeah, his bad teeth. Well, this is this is the moment that he's been preparing for. Yeah, his whole that's life. Right. Exactly. You know, he's ready. And that's you know, I think that's another reason I found it really gripping this time is of you know I love disaster films and I'm a bit of a fan of an outbreak style film, but previously in the past I think there was more of there's more drama in those films, whereas this film really deliberately downplays the drama so when you know when they get close to a vaccine the doctor's like yeah but it's going to take 12 months before we can actually roll this out like it's constantly kind of like dampening expectations throughout it but then you know the exposition could have been you know possible in a film like this where there's so much information to convey i think they did a great job they did a great job no they did big things happening in very short scenes yeah really good job of exposition i agree yeah but I think the reason I found it so much more gripping this time, despite it being quite procedural, was because I feel like we are much closer to this reality now yeah. than wow, we that's ever really have been. You know, like it felt like actually this is kind of like what might happen, mm-hmm. you know. So it was more sort of. It has happened. It has <laughs> happened, I know, but I'm saying that like. If an outbreak happened, Max. <laughs> <laughs> it's happening right now. <laughs> Well, I mean, I'm thinking about the, you know, the kind of um, antibiotics, impending antibiotics, you know, mm. apocalypse, mm. That, you know, we could be facing. And... Oh, rock melons are killing people in Queensland <laughs> right now. No. Yeah, someone I know got sick from rock oh, melons. Oh, no, that's yeah. so scary. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it all felt very real to me, like, in a way that it didn't before. I was just like, what is this dry, weird, boring, you know, don't, like, don't you understand? Like, you have to find the cure and then instantly everything's okay. And there has to be uh, lots of dead bodies. Lots of dead bodies. <laughs> and I think that's the thing weeping. that it really does beautifully is, like, just it really methodically, like a lot of his films, explains how boring the bureaucracy yeah, is behind yeah. pretty much everything, Yeah, you know. Yeah. And that, you know. And it took people, like, defying the bureaucracy to actually do anything to make a you know in this film yes in the world of this film it took people to like ignore commands in order to come up with a vaccine right yeah Yeah, it's true all Mm. right let's move on press pause press pause okay guys do you have any uh trivia to report um the informant was Soderbergh or one of his producers actually picked it up from an episode of This American Life. Really? So This American oh. Life covered the book and the story on an episode and it got to him somehow. Either he listened to it and he was all over it like a rash. Wow. I wonder how many yeah. times that's happened in the history of that show. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's such a long-running yeah. you know, podcast. Yeah. It must be a real spurrer of you know, TV mm. and movie ideas. Sure. Docos. Yeah. That's my only one. My one is um, I just forgot to mention in our discussion how much I love the music in oh, yeah. the format. Like yeah. I think it's my favourite soundtrack. Great. And I just looked up um, Marvin Hamlich of the who composed the film mm. um, and he's got a long career. Like he's been around since the 70s. He was piano player for Groucho in one of his final shows at Car- wow. Carnegie Hall. Um, he's done soundtracks for Liza and Babs. Batman and Bond. Oh, that's why he's perfect because yeah. it's so nineteen sixty. So, no, but it's so archetypal everything, like mm. archetypal farce, yes. archetypal thriller, yes. archetypal action. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. And Soderbergh said he he asked Marvin to compile uh, to compose for Mark and not for 
the audience. Mm. So the you know the music is for Mark for his yeah. his brain. Yeah. You know, so the, and that's that clip that I've played at the beginning of the episode, which is like he's talking about corn, and then he starts talking about tortillas, and the music goes from being like banjo music <laughs> to like mariachi music with the same song. It's so fucking good. It blows my mind. <laughs> that's yeah. really funny. So that um, was my one. What about um? What about for Contagion? Yeah? Contagion. I had a couple. One. Did anyone spot? Uh, Dimitri Martin. No. Who's <laughs> what? That? Who is that? Who are you talking about? Dimitri Martin is like an American comedian of Greek extraction, I believe. Yeah, he's like a um, PowerPoint comedian. Yeah, no, yeah I he's know very him. big on the slideshows. He's very funny, yeah. and he's one of the doctors who works with Jennifer out. out. Uh. At Eels? Eels? Yeah, so she's his offsider. He's the other doctor. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I, I, was, <laughs> I was watching it and I was like, no, is it? And I was like, I would love to know how that casting came about. Like, <laughs> when was he cut? Like, when was he auditioning for films? And, or did Soderbergh see him and think? Well, maybe in, really in the informant, they um, did a lot of comedians. Stand a lot of comedians, comedians yeah. um, did. Uh, so they were looking directly at stand-up comedians. So maybe he came along to that one and they cast him yeah, in this one. Maybe. It's probably like, you know, who you know as well. Like someone's like, oh, we're just, you know, come on. Come, come to set tomorrow. I'll put you in a doctor's jacket. Yeah. I don't want to diminish his talent in any way, shape or form. Well, he was like pretty good in it. Yeah, like yeah, I was yeah. pretty impressed. And the other one that I had for Contagion was that I am absolutely convinced that when Gwyneth Paltrow is talking to her lover on the phone in the first scene, that it's actually Soderbergh on the phone. It is. It, it is. is. I it is. It. Yeah, it is. It oh, my is. God. Okay, yeah. I was right. That, no, you were right, yeah. <laughs> because, I read yeah. it somewhere. I can't remember. What? what? I mean, yeah. the guy is played by someone else, like, later in the yeah, film. Yeah, yeah, but, but like the that, voice is The him. voice is Soderbergh. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. That's really cool. And also another bit of trivia is Gwyneth took all those photos that, um, that Matt is looking Matt Damon. Ah, I'm on first name all too. those really bad photos. <laughs> yeah, all those really bad photos. She took them. Ah. In, you know, well, when Queenie she... wasn't bad in it. I mean, I I'm not a fan, fine. but she was fine. Oh, yeah, I'm she... always kind of surprised. I'm like, oh, yeah, she's an actress. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> she acts. It's like it's weird for me to remember that. But, yeah. yeah. She was quite good. She did a – she acted. Yeah, yeah. she did. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe as a movie star she didn't have to act. She just has to be herself. <laughs> she glows. She glows. <laughs> All right, done. Yeah, done. Yeah, it's a wrap. And so ends episode 11 of Club Soderberg. Next episode, we'll look at Haywire, the beginning of the Chan Tate Soderberg connection, and Magic Mike, <laughs> the film that transports Jesse to a very sacred place. <laughs> if you want to catch up, you can subscribe to us on Beyond Pod, tune in on iTunes, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Next time you're at a party or a bar, grab a friend's phone and subscribe them to our show while they're not looking. Thanks, as always, to Zeph, our sound engineer extraordinaire, gracious host and hypochondriac who should never, ever, 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 ever watch Contagion. (laughs) (laughs) Please reach out and tell us your Soderbergh love, your fave soda films or any other juicy soda trivia. You can contact the team at Facebook page Club Soderbergh, Twitter at Club Soderbergh, and we'd really love you to be engaged with other Soderbergh fans. We'd love to be engaged with other Soderbergh fans, so please don't be shy, and we'll see you in a month for more Club Soderbergh on the rocks. <laughs>